Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. not coming. I have a fabulous guest today. All my guests are fabulous, but I have a special place here for this guest. As people may know, I'm a military mom. And today's guest is Chad Robichaud, a former force recon Marine. He served eight deployments in Afghanistan. He is also a champion MMA fighter and the author of the book, An Unfair Advantage, Chad and his wife have an outreach for military vets and their families struggling with getting reacclimated back to society for those who struggle with PTSD and depression. Up to 20% of our military vets and first responders struggle with the aftermath of PTSD, depression, and high rates of suicide. Quietly, Chad had battled for years with depression PTSD, and anxiety that resulted in him leaving his family and a close call with suicide. Through his faith, recommitment to his marriage, and having healthy relationships, Chad was able to change the course of his life and now is on a crusade to help others. With that, I would like to introduce Chad Robicho. And welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me on, Aaron. I, uh, I definitely have the gift of gab. So I think the best way for me to, to start today, because uh, I know you have such a story, is where you've been and how you got here. Yeah, well... My uh, my family's a, a family of, of Marines. So my, my father's a Marine who served in Vietnam. He's an infantry Marine. Uh, I served as a force reconnaissance Marine in the you know, special operations community. I did eight deployments to Afghanistan. And then, uh, and then like you being a military parent, I have two sons uh, now uh, that, that are Marines. Oh, my. So we, love the, we love the Marine Corps in our family. My oldest son, Hunter, served as an Anglico Marine. He went to Afghanistan, the same place I went, which is crazy. Uh, and then uh, my youngest son, Hayden, just graduated Marine Corps boot camp and is in his, his job training right now. So super proud of them. But, uh, you know, being in the military family, uh, beginning with my dad, you know, my dad really came home from Vietnam and suffered with a lot of things that many, many of the military warriors suffer with today. They, you know, he, um, he probably definitely had PTSD. He was angry, man, very violent, lots of alcohol, women, drugs. Uh, and there's a lot of physical abuse in our, in our home, a very dysfunctional home. So I grew up in that kind of childhood. And, um, and when I say physical abuse, I don't mean spankings with the belt. I have kids, so I'm down with spanking my kids, <laughs> but, uh, they're older now, but, uh, but, uh, but I mean like physical, like fist to face physical abuse. And that was kind of right. how my dad, my dad expressed anger was, uh, you know, through physical abuse in our home. And if you, anybody's ever grown up in a home like that, you know, the siblings get very close. And so my childhood, uh, and consisted of an older sister who was, a uh, you know, several years older than me, but my brother, who was a year older than me, the two of us really took the brunt of that physical abuse. And I think we were 13 and 14 years old. We were 
you know, grew up in Southern Louisiana in the, in the woods, in the bayou swamps, all that playing, playing military all the time. And we decided we wanted to go in the military. Um, one, it just fit our personality. And two, uh, it was a chance we kind of said, Hey, it was, we could escape, you know, this lifestyle, get away from, you know, the childhood that we were growing up in. And we were watching a video about, um, Navy SEALs. And I remember this guy coming out of the water and he had like a boonie hat on and his face was painted green. He had an M16 and scuba gear. And I'm like, like seaweed hanging off his head. Yes. And I thinking like, I want to do that. Like, that's what I want to do. And, uh, but I didn't want to join the Navy. Like, and no offense to Navy people, but I didn't want to join the Navy. No, no, know, I, I, <laughs> I, I do get that because I share with you, you know, I'm a military mom as we've discussed it. My dad was a fighter pilot in the Navy. So yeah. I'm kind of giggling at what you said because <laughs> my son, when he joined the army, uh, my dad was still like, he says, yeah, no, dad, I'm not doing the Navy. So <laughs> yeah, military always picks on each other and so I've got to pick yes. on them. But, but, but the truth is, I mean, I looked at my dad and, and as dysfunctional as my dad was and as even the relationship we had, the one thing that always made my dad happy and like proud was the fact that he was a United States Marine. And I'm like, if they could do something positive for that guy, like I, me, and my, me and my brother were like, we want to join the Marines. And we learned about what special operations was in the Marine Corps. And we learned about being recon Marines and it was force recon and, you know, and uh, force recon had a great reputation, special operations in Vietnam. And there's lots of books, start reading those. And we ran and we swam and we started preparing ourselves about a year into that um, tragedy hit our family. My brother was shot and killed. Oh, and so it was extremely devastating to me. I went in a deep isolation. What I had left of a family, oh. my, my mom could not handle it. And, uh, she ended up moving to a different city and my dad didn't want to deal with her. So he left a different country to go work. And so it really left me and my sister. And, uh, and when I was 17 years old, you know, I was working, trying to go through high school and I probably wasn't going to graduate high school. And, I met a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown who really heard my case and he just had a heart for my situation and he helped me get in Marine Corps at 17 years old without even a high school diploma. And, and so that's where really my, my military career began and my, my adult life, like really just a clean slate for me. And I really at the young age totally embraced it. I recognized the opportunity to be able to, you know, start over and uh, we just excelled in the Marine Corps. I want to be, like I said, I want to have that, fulfill that childhood dream. My brother and I had of being reconnaissance Marines and being in special operations. And uh, so I tried out that first year and I, I made it. And that's what I, the next 10 years would be training to do that job. Uh, and then desiring to actually go to war and do that job. I mean, I went into peacetime military in 1993. It wasn't like it is now. So you train and train and train, do all these crazy schools and learn how to, you know, scuba dive and jump on airplanes and, and, uh, and, you know, shoot every kind of weapon you can imagine and all these tactics and all these things that I was learning as being a recon Marine, but there was really no place to do it. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, that came at the, the cost of nine 11. And I remember, uh, I remember watching those planes flying their World Trade Center buildings on television. My wife and I were sitting on the couch watching it. And I was assigned to Third Force Recon Company at the time. And I, I knew watching that, I'm like, my life's about to be different. And, uh, and it wasn't right. like, like scared. Like the military wasn't like, oh my gosh, we're going to war. Everyone was showing up at the command. Like, hey, what's up, sir? Like when we go and do this. I mean, the military was motivated. We wanted to deploy. We wanted to go set things right. And uh, I tried out for a JSOC task force, a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force. In uh, 2003, I was accepted, and I ended up doing eight deployments in that capacity. And um, you know, can I can I ask you, um, your your brother? I'm sorry, I did not know that. Was he already a Marine? Was he? No, no, we were we were 14 and 15 years old, so he was a year older than me, and uh, we had broken families. So he had a, a stepbrother from. Uh, 
from another marriage and he was together with him and he got an argument with his stepbrother and his stepbrother pulled a shotgun off of a gun rack and, and shot him in the chest. So oh my God. He, he died instantly. Oh my the, gosh. The kid, the kid was young. He was like 11 years old. So I don't think he even knew. That it, it ruined his life too. So, uh, I mean, at the time I remember being you know, so angry and thinking my, oh, my brother's murdered, but I mean, um, you know, look at it now and this, this poor kid, uh, his whole life was ruined over it. So, you know, you, um, you, you come from a place of, of you know, learning, um, you know, life is so difficult. And so I, you have this, the way you were brought up and you just shared with us, you know, the dysfunction and the losses and then the military growing up in a family that way. And, and how did you find your courage? What, what were you thinking? How did you get through that and then find yourself um, as we're getting ready to talk about your military career? Um, Because most of us, uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, I've I've shared some um, horrific situations in my own life. I think many of us have. That's that's a tough story. And you were so young. What were? How'd you get through that? I think you know when you end that's such a a dark place. Like my childhood to look back, it was it was a dark place. I think there's you know two ways to respond. You could you could get you know kind of crumble from that darkness from that pressure, or you right. could be looking, looking for for a light for the light and looking for an opportunity a way out. And I think I was at that, those teenage years, I had set that seed early on my mind at 13 years old that I wanted to go in the military. And so that was always like this glimmer of light, like out. And so when I actually made it a reality, I just embraced it. So you kept that in your forefront of your thinking, you, you saw that goal or that, like you explained the the light for you and a way out and you kept just moving towards that. Yeah. And even when I was young, you know, like I said, I went in when I was 17. So I was very young and, uh, and I don't know what gave me the, the perspective to understand how significant of an opportunity that was. I mean, uh, you know, I have an MBA today when I went in to the Marine Corps, I didn't even have a high school diploma. So I was starting from zero and to sort of just look at an opportunity like that at that age and say, this is a real opportunity. And so like I'd have friends that would go out partying and drinking and stuff like that. And I didn't, I didn't do any of those things. I just focused on being the best Marine I could be. And, uh, uh cause I realized this is a, a opportunity for me to have a fresh start. And so and, that and dream a, kept you going. Yeah, it did. Even in high school, like, uh, you know, when I hung out, I didn't hang out with the best, best people. I hung out, I always, you know, am attracted and still to this day to being around rough, rugged guys. And, and, uh, I was, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's, you know, who I hung around in high school and they were all partying and doing drugs and drinking and stuff. And I just never, I hung out with them. They were my friends, but I just never did those kind of things. Not because I was, you know, goody two shoes or anything. It's just like I had goals and I'm like, these right. things would, would interfere with that. So I just always had that perspective from an early age. I don't know where it came from. Uh, I would say that if I had to think of anything that would have came from, you know, I've been to more shorts since I was five years old. I'm 45 mm-hmm. now, so 40 years of doing more shorts and being on wrestling mats and training. So I think, you know, more shorts gives a, you know, a lot of you know, self-discipline and work, work ethic and uh, okay. make personal sacrifices uh, in order to achieve goals. So I, I would probably attribute if I could attribute anything from my childhood, it would, it would be that. Now, do you work with youth as well? I mean, you would be such, and I'm sure you already are an amazing mentor to our youth. Uh, what is it that you think is missing for them? Um, 
what would be a great message to send out um, for the youth that, because a lot of us go through lots of struggles before we get to our adult life. I think, I think one thing that's missing in our culture and, and particularly for our youth is, is real role models. Our role models are our, our system of role models are, are flawed um, to where we look at the, we look, we look and pursue the lives of the wrong models. Um, you know, we look at people who, who are, who have these personal accolades of uh, success that are really not, real success in life, you know, whether it be financial or social status, like attention, popularity, as opposed to achieving valuable accomplishments in life. So we look at, we, we have the wrong, wrong model for uh, pursuing. And I, and I think the, um, because we have the wrong model and we aren't looking at the right place for people to look to, to try to emulate, uh, we don't really learn the, the, the valuable lessons that are learned from the most successful people in, in life. And, and uh, those lessons aren't just how to succeed, but how to fail. Uh, I think uh, that's why wow. I, love, I love sports and I love young kids growing up in sports and particularly wrestling. You know, if I could use wrestling as an example, you know, kids don't just learn how to win in wrestling. They learn how to lose because, you know, if you have a, if you have a thousand kids in a wrestling bracket, 500 of, of the go lose the first round, 750 are gonna lose the second round. They learn how to lose and lose Learning how to win is important. Learning how to lose in life is important because life's hard. And uh, so I think just having the right models, uh, having to having people that could teach those lessons, how to win, how to lose, how to get back up again. Um, right. I and, think that's uh, really important. And, and I think it's important for parents here. You, you, you know, when I get into this conversation with, you know, some of my friends, um, it's obvious talking to you and, and I, I see you, uh, you've got a really strong constitution uh, and like not everybody has that. Do you believe there's a way for us to impart that to someone that doesn't feel that they have that? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think everybody, not everybody's wired the same and not everybody has the same level of drivenness, but we all have, we all have goals and, uh, and we all have things that we want to achieve. And, you know, maybe, you know, if we lined our goals up against one another, they, they're, they're going to be different, but I think that, um, you know, setting goals, teaching, teaching others that it's, you know, setting goals and, uh, and working towards those goals until they're, until they're achieved or, you know, or things that can't be co- compromised in life. I mean, uh, we have to, you know, that doesn't mean things aren't going to deviate, but I think people are so easy to set goals uh, because they felt a certain way in a moment. And then, you know, when it gets hard, they give, give up on them. Correct. So that's where you're going back to, you know, and it is, it's very true to teach your children, you know, you, you don't win at everything or you don't get to have everything. I've definitely been this with my kids and I, they get really mad at me because I won't enable when they were teenagers, a certain behavior, which would really tick them off. But uh, you're right. We do need to learn, you know, um, it's, it's it like is, the special operations training. I mean, um, right. you know, most Marine recon, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, I mean, these, every, the level of people, young men that want to be, you know, a special operations guy is like, mm-hmm. it's cool. They, they look, they're like me. They seen that, that, that picture and that video, the, the guy coming out of the water and like, oh, swamp. Do that. yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, but then they get out there and they, they, it's actually hard. <laughs> and we so, have, we yeah. have 80, 80% attrition rate, you know, everyone, I'd say, wow. Out of this eighty percent of kids that don't graduate those those programs, probably ninety nine percent of them are capable of, of graduating. And just at some point, they decide they decided that they didn't want to do it anymore. Why? Simple reason why? Because it got hard. 
Uh huh. And, and that's the only reason why. Every one of them, because they get they get screened, they get selected, they get do an assessment and selection to get in those programs. So they have the military is not going to waste money on them. They they assess them and say, okay, this person has what it takes to graduate. The only uh, the only obstacle is if they're going to quit or not. If kids ask me all the time, like, hey, I, I signed up for this program. Can you give me an advice? And the simple advice is make a predecision in advance that you're not going to quit. Because if you don't decide in advance you're not going to quit, as soon as it get, gets hard and you have a valid excuse, I have bronchitis, I have my IT bands are swollen, my back hurts, like I have a right. sickness, you start looking for excuses to justify you quitting. If you decide in advance that, okay, these things are going to happen, I'm going to get bronchitis. My knees are probably going to hurt. I'm probably going to get injured. Despite those things, I'm going to do what I came here to do. I'm going to graduate. And, uh, and if you can't make that decision in advance, then, then you're going you're gonna to buckle to those, those valid excuses. And, and that's the same as in life. Like, right. You know, it's hard to learn, though. But you're absolutely right. It's a pact that you have to have with yourself. Yes. Yeah. And I think, those, I think the decisions to achieve those things, like I said, a pre-decision it's always best it's always made best made in advance you don't try to decide along the way if you're going to stick with things or not well you know i'm really glad that you shared your the beginning of your story because i think it's important because we all have a beginning and and where we can get lost and to to know there's mentors around to help redirect us but so much of that comes from within and even though you may not be born so um, yeah, I was born and raised in Kansas, and I always talk about the power of stick to itiveness, yeah. which is propensity <laughs> to follow through in a determined manner, dogged persistence, born of obligation and stubbornness. But my mom taught me that life requires you to have stick to itiveness. And while you may not be born with it, you have to learn the habit and develop the habit of persevering, even when you don't want to, and it would be easier to give up. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that. And that's, I could tell you that everything, every successful thing I've I've done in my life, uh, there along the journey of, of reaching the pinnacle of success in the, in those, in those different parts of my life has been moments to where I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't like doing it. It became too difficult. There was opposition and there was very valid reasons to quit. Every one of the, the things that I've achieved in my life that I would say were, were solid achievements, uh, including the work I do right now is running Mighty Oaks Foundation, you know, run an amazing nonprofit to help veterans. Uh, probably one of the most difficult things I ever did, um, starting a successful nonprofit. And, uh, right. And we're, I'm, um, at, at the end, I'm going to make sure everyone has it. I'll jump in here right now. But it's uh, the Mighty Oaks Foundation. So it's www.mightyoaksfoundation.org. And I'll bring that up again, but it's, it's, it's always important, you know, where we start and how we get to where we are. And, and so you were talking about, you joined the Marines at 17 and then when nine 11 happened, you knew yeah. things were about to change. Yep. And I, you know, tried out, uh, you know, as a four street Marine, I tried out for a JSOC task force. I got, ex- got accepted. If you don't know those on the JSOC is joint special operations command, which would be like the, top tier of special operations um, and worked primarily with, uh, with Navy SEALs in that capacity um, and on his joint task force. And uh, you know, my experience in Afghanistan, uh, you know, when, when you went, when I, when I got there, I remember like really, actually I remember landing in the middle of the night on Bagram Air Force Base. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, flying, traveling with my team. I was meeting my team there. So I got there in the middle of the night and was waiting to link up. And I remember walking out to the edge of the, 
the Hesco barriers, which are like earth filled barriers and Constantino wire. And I'm thinking like, Oh my gosh, like I'm actually, this is real. Like 10 years in the military. I'm not a young man anymore of the 10 years in the military, lots of training. Like this is real. I'm actually in combat. I'm in Afghanistan on the other side of these barriers, somewhere in the dark out there is the Taliban, like the enemy. And they're going to, over the next month, they're going to try to kill me and I'm going to try to kill them. Like that's just real. And I think in, in anybody like rationally in a moment like that, will ask yourself, like, am I ready to do this? And am I ready to do it? I'm sent here to do train to do. And, and I, I would have said, yes, the military talks about um, four pillars of resiliency, the mind, body, spirit, social, like being mentally tough, uh, f- physically, physically fit enough to do your job, having a strong spiritual foundation socially. I would have said yes to all those things. Like I was mentally, physically tough. I had to wear Christian stamped on my dog tags. I was spiritually set and I had to socially, I was with the best guys I could be with. Um, but I think if I really inventory looking backwards, I think it was the the spiritual piece. That was the piece that wasn't solid for me. I, I believe that I had to make a decision when I got there between being a person of faith and being a, um, and being a warrior. I felt like the two couldn't really coexist. And uh, oh. so I, I, I've, I believe like my perspective of observing like people in church and stuff that Christianity, faith in the church were like weak. And so I had this perspective, like I, I, I could do that later when I get older, but right now I need to be this warrior. And so I believe I made a deliberate decision to put faith out of my life in that moment. And I think that decision left a giant hole inside of me that I feel with like hate and rage and anger, bitterness. And uh, really a, 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 I seen over time, like a darkness kind of come over me. And uh, in Afghanistan, I was, I would operate, uh, like I was just very intense. I was, I, I was very intense. My personality is, is intense as it is, but in that environment, like this hatred towards the Taliban and the enemy and all the Afghans that I worked with, cause I was living with Afghans and they were, had this hatred towards the Taliban. And then the, t- the task force I was with, like everybody had this like real drivenness and, uh, and this intensity about them, which by the way, works really well in combat, but while it works well in combat, one, it's not necessary because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And, uh, and we can still do our job without, you know, doing things vengeful and hateful. And, uh, and, and most importantly, I think to know is that mentality is not sustainable. Um, it will, it will erode you. And, uh, and, and there are consequences to living that way. And I, and I experienced those. I mean, I, I would come home, I couldn't, I'd come home from Afghanistan and I'd be home like 24 hours later and, I couldn't flip a switch and be like my husband, a father, Mr. Rogers, the friendly neighbor. Like I was still like this angry, intense guy. And I, yes. I'm, ashamed, I'm ashamed to say all the time, but I have to say it. It's important for what I'm communicating here. Like my wife and children were scared of me. I would throw temper tantrums. I'd slam doors. I'd punch holes in the wall. I'd yell at them like I was a drill instructor. It was just not a, a healthy place for them to be. It probably not a safe place for them to be. I remember mm-hmm. one time I was coming home for my daughter's birthday and she's, my daughter, I, I didn't realize until I had a daughter that there was such thing as half birthdays, but there is, <laughs> she like, she's like her apprentice in her own <laughs> mind and she loves birthdays. It's a very important day to her. And so for her to move her birthday party, a date over from her dad to be home from Afghanistan was a big deal to her. And she moved her date birthday over. I was home for a birthday. She's celebrating and we had, you know, a cake for her and she's very opinionated. She still is even more so now she's getting married now. So her opinions. I was going to say, how old are your children now? <laughs> yeah. So she, she's twenty two my oldest is 24 and my youngest is 20 but she she didn't like we had her birthday party and she didn't like the icing on her cake and something so simple and i like totally flipped out grabbed a handful of my little girl's cake and picked it up and threw it against the wall 
and just destroyed my little girl's birthday party. And I'm, I remember thinking oh. like, who like, who does stuff like that? What kind of dad behaves that way? And I realized I was out of control. And instead of correcting the behavior, I just isolated myself like, um, and figured that I would just kind of keep a distance between them and, and, uh, and really, uh, didn't uh, put kind of delayed putting off the problem over time that, that, that frustration and anger started to manifest in these physiological symptoms that I personally never thought that I would deal with. And it was, um, I, my arms would go numb. My face would go numb. I'd feel like my throat was swelling shut. Sometimes I felt like I had a hundred pound weight on my chest. And, you know, these are anxiety symptoms, right. panic attacks right. coming on. And when I started experiencing this, I recognized it was a problem, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to, didn't want to tell my peers, my teammates, because I thought I knew they would think the same thing I would have thought that they were weak. And uh, so I didn't want to say anything to them. This is a small special operations community, you know, mid two thousands people didn't talk about this kind of stuff. And back then, so I didn't want to say anything. Right. I also didn't want to go to mental health because if I went to mental health, I was, I was afraid that they would uh, take away my clearance and my, my, mm-hmm. my top secret clearance and my SCI clearance and uh, by, by going to mental health. So I just tried to keep it to myself, push it down, keep doing my job. And over time, uh, those symptoms begin to get worse. It didn't get better. It got worse. And, um, I, I even had these moments to where I'd kind of like wait, lose gaps of time. Like I'd like lose mo- minutes and then hours and then days where I like waking up out of a fog, probably the most intense like effect I ever felt from, uh, from this was, I felt like this, this thing is called disassociation where your mind is almost separate from your body. You see yourself like playing a yes. video game. And so, uh, you know, this would happen during some pretty intense moments in Afghanistan and things in Afghanistan were beginning to get worse and worse and worse. And there was a moment to where I had, we had 12 team members captured and killed 10 of them were, were Afghans. And uh, maybe somebody listening might not think that's a big deal, but to me, that was a very big deal. These were my brothers. Like I lived in their homes. I ate dinner with their families, played soccer with their kids. And I, I was with them for like three years and I was responsible for them. And they, these guys would have died for me and I would have died for them. In fact, I believe they did die for me. And uh, if I was hanging on by a thread in that moment, that thread was probably broken. I ended up operating again after that on a two week operation, working with, with local nationals only. And when I came back from that operation, I recognized that I didn't only make some decisions that put myself in danger, but had put other people in danger as well. And so I made a decision to speak up and say something. And when I did, I was, as I suspected, I was brought home, put before a clinical psychologist and I was diagnosed with, with PTSD. And, uh, you know, this, I could spend the you know, hours talking to you about PTSD and what it is right. and what it's not. Um, I even wrote, have written books on, on PTSD, but, but um, I could tell you that, while I don't agree with that PTSD is a disorder, the symptoms are very, very real. And, uh, and so people, sometimes I'll uh, hear people say sometimes that, you know, I was in traffic the other day and I had a panic attack. Well, uh-huh. you know, I'm not just dis- minimizing that, but what I mean is like, there's different levels. Like when I say I have a panic attack, I, I I'm convinced in that moment that I'm going to die. If I had one right now, even knowing what I know, the physiological symptoms are so overwhelming. You believe you're going to die. And, uh, I mean, the only way to know how to describe it is like being chained at the bottom of a swimming pool and you're drowning. Like think about how desperate would you be to get one breath of air, but you never drown. You never die. Like you're that way at 24 seven. And that's the state I was in. And on top of that, I felt completely ashamed because I was doing this, what I believe to be a super important. I've worked my whole life to make it there, you know, going into Marine Corps, going to recon, making it to force recon, making it to JSOC, getting given this important mission to be on. I worked my whole life to get there. And then, and then I failed at it. I, I failed myself. I felt like I failed my teammates. I failed my country. Like I was very ashamed of where I was. And, and, uh, you know, my wife and I were trying to find something to, 
with my counselor to get me out of this. And they talked me into getting back in those wrestling mats. Like I said, I've been doing jujitsu. I always joke when I'm speaking, I say, I've, I've, yeah, back to it, back to a sport that's yeah. got, that helps you. Yeah, I always say get I through this time. Little, little, but I'm still little. I'm a small guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it since I was five. So like getting back on there, I already already had fought professionally on the side from the military. So yeah, so getting back to something positive. And to be honest with you, Aaron, like when I got on those mats for the first time after Afghanistan, I felt like I found the cure because you can't do something and be present in a moment, training and something like jujitsu and 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 think about Afghanistan. Your mind has to be focused, and so it's very healthy for me to do that, but you could have a, you could have a medicine for being sick and you could abuse that medicine and you could take something right. good for you and you could take it out of context and abuse it. And that's really what I did with jujitsu. I, I put all my time in there. And I never got better. I mean, I had, I found success. I opened a school. I had like a thousand students. I started fighting professionally again. I was ranked number six in the world as a flyweight. I won a world title belt. I ended up being 18 and two as a pro. I fought on pay-per-view and showtime and all, all this stuff. And and so it looked like I was successful on the outside, but underneath that fake facade of success, I was still dealing with panic attacks. I, wasn't, I don't even know how I was functioning athlete, as an athlete because I wasn't sleeping at night. Uh, me, and my, me and my wife's marriage was, had fallen apart. We were just this dead marriage. And, uh, and, and I ended up having relationships outside of my marriage with other women, ended up in a full-blown affair. And when my wife found out, we sat our family down and we just said, okay, we're going to get divorced. We sold our home. We filed for divorce. We signed two separate leases for 12 months in apartments. And uh, during that time apart, um, my wife and I had two very different reactions. My wife went into a church and really, she just wanted to be in a, around some positive people. I think not to be in the toxic environment. And I went to just, I signed this fight on, on strike force for showtime, uh, for showtime to fight on showtime. I remember like training for this fight for like three months in this apartment. I didn't have to deal with it with my wife because she never understood. And then, right. So I'm just like kind of free. Like I felt free. And, uh, and I was just so occupied with this fight that I really get to the chance to look at what I was doing, you know, around me and how bad a shape I was really in. And I'm in this fight, Toyota center, Houston, Texas, 10,000 people. And of my 18 wins, I have, I have 17 submissions. So meaning that only one, I only had a decision in one fight and it was this fight. It was back and forth. Like if you have, if you like fighting, this was like my Rocky Balboa fight. Like, okay. I, I got, I knocked him down every round and he knocked me down every round. It was back and forth and it could have went either way. And I remember when the, the rep, the judges announcing, you know, the rep, the announcers announcing the judge's decision, he announces one guy for my opponent, Alberto De Leon. They announced one judge for me. And so I'm like, this could be a split decision. I've been, I've been punched in the head for the last 15 minutes. I don't remember how it went. And I'm thinking I'm going to lose this fight. And then they announced one per, the third judge for me. And uh, my hand was raised and like 10,000 people were screaming. And, and I remember like all the weight and excitement, weight coming off of me, the excitement of winning this fight. But like in that moment, it was like very surreal. Like it was almost like time stopped. And everything right. quiet, quiet. And I, and I was thinking of all these 10,000 people cheering. Not one of them was Kathy, my wife. And she used to be at all my fights before and like my cheerleader before so that, that support. Yeah. Well, it's great I mean, support from her. What was the contrast of uh, thinking like I had just fought so hard for this stupid win on my record when it came to, you know, fighting for my family, I wasn't doing that. And so, so that reality of that left made me leave that ring with my head down. And I walked out and went to my apartment that night by myself, laying in bed and my mind spinning. And I'm thinking of all the kind of finally get a chance to 
I, I couldn't look forward to something. I was looking forward to the fight before, but there's nothing ahead of me now. And I'm thinking like, man, I blamed everybody for everything, including my, you know, my father, people in the military, my wife for not understanding, but the common denominator problem was me. And all this hardship and what my family was going through was, was me that was responsible for it. And so this, this thought came over me that maybe my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. You know, maybe they would be sad, you know, if I was gone, if I took my life, but they would be better off without me. And uh, unfortunately, that same, you know, hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of over 20 veterans every single day. And I decided I was gonna take my life. I would, um, I had um, in my closet of my apartment, I would put my family pictures around me and I had a Glock, Glock 22 pistol. And I would try to build up the courage to, you know, put that pistol to my head and, and pull the trigger. That's a, you know, 40 caliber pistol. And uh, I, I don't know what it was. I believe, I believe it was God, like a God kind of intuition, intuition or intervention that, but every time I'd put that gun to my head to pull the trigger, this overwhelming thought would come over me. Like who was going to find me? Cause somebody's going to hear it or you're going to be missing. Somebody's going to find you. And uh, so who's, it would just play out like who would find me. And the only person that had a key in my apartment besides me was my son, Hunter. Uh, and so that thought of him being part of finding me was enough to make me pump the brakes and stop, but I still would be back at it the next day trying to do it again. And, uh, the final morning that this happened, my, my wife had came to my apartment and she, when she knocked on the door, I was in that closet with the pistol. And when I heard the knock, I wasn't going to answer it. But when she announced her voice, it was like a little kid getting caught doing something wrong. Cause she would have never came in my closet or saw that gun. But when I heard her voice, I hid that gun under a blanket. And, uh, and I went to the door and I got no argument with her cause I was, you know, irritated that she would even come by. And during this argument, she asked me a question that, that radically changed my life and probably saved my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did. And we were, we were 17 and 18 when we met. So she watched me, you know, go into Marine Corps and, and try out for recon and do this crazy training and all this hard stuff and win these fights and train for these fights and cut weight for these fights and, go to Afghanistan. She saw me do all this stuff and all the discipline it took to do some of these things in my life. And she's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And uh, there's probably no more soul cutting word to me than to be called a quitter. And uh, she was right. I'd been successful at professional things when it came to the most important things, being a husband, being a father, being a young 17 year old kid that raised his hand and said he wanted to do something important with his life. I quit in all those things, including my own will to live. And so I made a radical decision in that moment that uh, I was going to pull it back together and uh and and fix things and you know your your story in this conversation um so much comes in about because life can be so hard and you hit upon some things one even just talking about it i think historically we don't like to talk about these issues they're uncomfortable but the fact that you are talking about it you did talk about it and it brings up things that we don't seem to want to understand or we move away from emotions Oh, and I guess because, you know, you're a man, you shouldn't have emotions or you bring up feeling ashamed and, and, and we don't talk about feeling ashamed. A lot of times we don't take accountability at which you had done and that, that process of, of owning it. And we, I think that we're in a moment and I, and I, I did bring up to you before we, we came on and we were talking about in this time of COVID, and I was going to ask you with, you know, people being 
you know, locked away and they can't be with people or that voice getting in your head or we worry about the past. We don't necessarily see the future, yet you were in that moment in that fight. And because you were present in the moment, the future or the past wasn't there that helped you get through it. There is a plethora of deep emotional and mental um uh, uh, talking about the, the hate that you felt, but the love that was there, there seems to be such a huge turning point happening for all of us. And just the idea that you're sitting here sharing this today, the courage it takes, because normally we don't want to talk about it. Is is it because we're afraid of it? We don't understand it. What is this idea that I think we're going to have to get to, especially as we move through COVID? We've got to get back to that place of of love uh, and a place of it's okay to have struggles it's okay to be different it's okay to be flawed it's okay to have emotions and, and for all this time that we didn't want to talk about it here it is i'm sitting talking to you and and people will think as a former recon marine that that we would dare touch upon that and here we are. I, I just, I think it is so courageous. It is so important. It is so real. And that I hope we continue to move forward to open the discussion in this conversation for others that you're graciously sharing with us today. And, and there's so much involved in it. It's, it's overwhelming. Yeah, well, it, it is important, regardless of how uncomfortable it would be, because we have to realize that we're not the only ones that struggle. And uh, if I'm one step, maybe I don't have it figured out, but if I'm one step ahead of the next person and someone's maybe even one step ahead of me, it's very important that we share our struggles and realize that we're not alone. Uh, you know, that, that decision for me to, to get well uh, required follow-up action. And, um, you know, just deciding to get well, is not enough. We have many times in our life we decide to get well, but it requires action. And uh, one of the things I recognized right away in that moment that I made a decision to get well finally is that I, one, I couldn't do it alone. And two, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it with the people I'd surrounded myself by because the truth is I had surrounded myself by people that told me everything I wanted to hear and not what I needed to hear. I'd really systematically pushed accountability out of my life. Uh, I wasn't a strong person of faith at that time, but I knew my wife was around some good people. And I asked her, is there some man at this church you're going to that could help hold me accountable this decision? And, uh, and so she introduced me to a man that happened to be a call at the church. His name was Steve Toth. He wasn't an MMA fighter. He wasn't a military guy. He wasn't any, we didn't have a lot in common. He was just an elder on call, uh, a small business owner in our town. And I met him at a Starbucks coffee shop and I had written, a, um, and written like a, a five paragraph order, like on paper, like how I was going to five paragraph order for those who are in the military. It was like an operational order of how I was going to fix my life. And it was really good. And I was really proud of it. And I like smugly probably slid it over to him and told him, hey, check this out. I'm going to fix things. And, and he put his hand on that paper and slid back over to me and told me I was going to fail. I remember being like really offended because I was like, this guy's pretty rude. First of all, like he didn't even look at my paper and he, he tapped on that paper and I'll never forget what he said. Um, but his, as he tapped on the paper, he didn't even look at it. He was staring at me and he said, if this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time and I'm not, not going to let you waste mine. And, uh, you know, and though maybe not everybody uh, was in the same place I was in or even agrees with faith on this show. I know this isn't a, a faith-based show, but uh, it's very important I share this because for me, I had uh, tried everything in my life at that time. I had been through medication. I had been on all the medication, the counseling, 
uh, BA programs, all that stuff, uh, including professional success. None of those things, some of those things are good. Some of those things are bad, but none of those things changed my situation. And, uh, and I knew, you know, if I really inventory my life, that was a weak area of my life was my faith. And so I figured, what do I have to lose? We have a saying at Mighty Oaks Foundation. If what you're doing isn't working, why not try something different? And uh, <laughs> everything I tried didn't work. It was time for me to try something different. So I, I, I uh, trusted this man, Steve. I made a, a submission of faith to where I just, I, I, I followed, you know, kind of his mentorship and guidance. I surrendered my life to Christ. I became a Christian. He mentored me for about a year and what that actually meant. Cause I didn't really even know what that meant at the time. And, uh, and through that year, what I discovered was so simple, probably a lot of people listening, but so profound to me. I discovered that all these bad things in my past, as bad as some of those things that may have been, and I shared some of those things with you, as bad as those things were, those things did not lead me to be in that closet with a pistol in my hand, would led me there with a choice that made response to those things. Mm-hmm. Never had lost control of the ability to choose. And as I'm getting mentored in these biblical principles of living, I'm realizing now when I, I have a model, we talked about model and mentorship earlier. I have a model in order to make good choices moving forward. I have the ability to make like this model of living. I could, when I have to make a choice, now I have this model I could go to. The Bible has a tons of you know, advice and wisdom for living. And, uh, and, and in, in doing that, uh, I realized that, uh, I didn't have to, let, as simple as it may sound, and it sounds cliche, I didn't have to let my past define my future. I could choose a different future moving forward because I was in control of my choices and I can make better choices moving forward. And in doing that, being really intentional about making the right choices in response to what had happened to me moving forward, didn't change. I couldn't go back in time and change stuff, but I could right. respond differently. And when I started responding differently, um, I began to find restoration in my own brokenness and my family and the hardships of my marriage. I began to find hope for the first time in a very long time. And ultimately I found what I've been searching, I believe my whole life for. And I think what we all search for and that's purpose. And we were created that purpose. We have to wake up in the morning and, and and know that there's something for us to do. There's something ahead for us to do. And we're designed that well purpose. We kind of weather up and die. And that's, I believe that's a big veteran suicide issue is people had a mission and very important. And then they didn't have that anymore. They don't have that purpose and they don't want to live anymore. And so purpose is so important to us. And I felt like when I discovered uh, really the life I believe God created me to live, uh, that purpose manifested and on a deep burden put on my heart to realize that I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only one struggling with this, but I had the solution. I had a way forward. Right. And, uh, and you know, 22 veterans were taking their life every day, divorce rates up to 80% on combat veterans, uh, you know, 30, 30 to 40% of our combat veterans are being diagnosed with PTSD. Like a lot of people having a problem, the same problems I had. It was like, if I was dying of cancer and this guy, Steve Toth gave me the cure, I had this burden on my heart to share it with others. And, and, uh, and it manifested in a starting my Yokes foundation. And I mean, to date, I've, uh, I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I just felt a, like obligated right. to do this and step out and do this. It was 10 years ago. And uh, I've spoken to over 150,000 active duty troops. Now I've given away about hundred thousand copies of my book. We started a program called legacy program, the week long camps. We have like five locations around the country. We fly active duty and veterans and spouses there. We pay for everything. And we've had 4,000 graduates uh, from this. And so we, it's, it's been just amazing 10 years of, of uh, just paying it forward and, maybe not having it all figured out, but taking people on a journey to move forward in the right direction. And to absolutely live, to live. And you have at your book, you are author of an unfair advantage. And again, the mighty Oaks foundation, it's been up and running now for 10 years. I didn't realize what you'd helped 150,000 through yeah. your foundation. <laughs> yeah. I get, I get the, the enormous privilege to go speak to active duty troops all around 
the world. And uh, one of the things you asked me if I speak to young people a lot, uh, the youngest I get to speak to, and I wish I wish I did have that bandwidth and capacity. I'd love to speak to you know youth, and I try to speak to like high school wrestling teams sometime and stuff. Uh-huh. But I, I get to go at Marine Corps boot camp every quarter uh, for the last five years now and speak to these brand new young 17, 18, 19 year old kids. And young. Sometimes like a 20, 27 year old sneaks in there, but these young kids and, and speak to them about, <laughs> about resiliency and, and making the decisions in advance. Like, hey, hey, these guys just signed up, maybe not for free college. They signed up for a hard job and in and, and, and a time of war, 20 years of war. And they're going to face some difficult things, whether they go to combat or not. And they need to be making the decisions in advance to prepare them, prepare them to be you know, solid combat ready war fighters, but also resilient to the hardships of, of military service. So they could bounce back and still be come home in their communities and their, their own homes and their own lives be productive and, and not let these hardships of life knock them down. And so the Marine Corps and, and all the other branches, I go, I just spent some time at 82nd airborne. I know your son was in, in 10th mountain. In the mountain. Yeah. So I, I just went to speak to 82nd airborne. I speak to all these units and get to speak to these and tell them on the front end, about the how to prepare uh, through being resilient and what to look for when it comes to suicide and PTSD and stuff like that to make decisions in advance. And we were talking about earlier, um, are you seeing an increase in PTSD and, and issues uh, during COVID? You had mentioned a, a statistic of isolation and, and what was happening. Yeah. Over the last few years, we've seen an increase in active duty suicides. Um, when that number 22 was floating around, there was really 21 veterans, 20, and then one active right. duty. Now we're seeing right. about four active duty per day. But uh, in the, we don't know. The numbers take a little, a little lag to catch up, so we don't know what it is currently today. But we do know that there's a – we do know that the suicide rates on active duty troops in all four branches now are at a all-time high. And – and uh, since the COVID lockdown started, and they said they, the, the, the heads of the military branches have all indicated that this is due to the lockdowns, that uh, there's been a 35% increase in active duty suicides. I mean, uh, these oh guys, are, you know, they're away from their families, they're away from their, their homes, they're locked down and in, in, in the restriction. They're not training and being busy. I mean, one of the great things about being in the military is you're always busy and you keep them I mean, not right. training as much right now. And so the, there's a high level of depression and, uh, and the, the morale is, is just really struggling through these lockdowns. And, and this uh, is where 35 I think increase. through COVID, um, we break through that ceiling, if you will, of having this conversation about depression or PTSD or um, vulnerabilities or being inside of our head or um, and and how to find our, our way back has been very tough. Yeah. And, and maybe we'll begin to truly have that conversation, something that you've been working on through your foundation. Yeah. And may I ask, does Kathy work with you on the foundation? She does. She, you know, we get tons of requests for me to speak and, and she just, uh, she's, we tried to have other people kind of field those requests for me to travel and speak to bases. And she just knows me the best. She knows my personal schedule the best. She kind of manages my, my travel and schedule. And, uh, and then she also works with a lot of the spouses in our spouses program. Yeah, and that's so important. And I want to shout out to Kathy, Kathy and a thank you because, you know, as, as a military mom, I mean, it does affect the family. Yes. Um, and, and where they turn to, uh, it's, it, it just affects the entire family. Yep. And, and, uh, and then in addition, my oldest son, who's an Afghanistan Marine and Afghanistan veteran, who just finished his six years in the Marine Corps. 
uh, is, uh, came to work for the foundation as well. And so that was kind of like a dream, uh, kind of a goal and dream for him was to work for the foundation. So, well, and what a great foundation and, and what an incredible story. And I, I can see why, you know, uh, I've always believed, you know, there's always this idea that if we're in a box and you have to have a certain education or have done a certain thing in order to have a certain conversation, but the true experience of walking through life and walking through hell, if you will, and coming out the other side for me are incredible role models. They've been there, done that on the ground and um, it, it can really help. And it doesn't mean you have to have, because for me in a different way in, in my work, I grew up as a dyslexic, but I was often told I wouldn't achieve what I felt and knew that I could because I didn't fit a certain criteria. And so I was judged a certain way and told that because I didn't have this science degree or because I didn't have that, what I saw or was experiencing wasn't real. So I often turn to mentors such as yourself that have been there and done that. And I'm, this whole conversation has been so enlightening for me. And again, to embrace the fact that we're always so afraid to, to touch upon and talk upon these issues that you've experienced. And that I, I really hope the time has come. And I do believe through your foundation, Mighty Oaks, you're doing incredible work in keeping that message and the positivity and the support and the openness and the transparency and, and embracing our vulnerabilities and working from love and support and, and, facing yes what we don't want to a moment where we fail but you know what failure truly is the greatest success in finding who we are that you you're just uh, incredible and um I, i i felt i needed to say that and sometimes i'm stumbling around because so much was laid out here in this conversation but i'm like yes and and it's a while it's dark and daunting it is a very empowering, very important message that we all hear. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, thank you. Truly great courage. And, and uh, I, I want everyone to know listening today, um, if you haven't read it, get it. Um, Chad is author of An Unfair Advantage. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, please familiarize yourself with it. Their foundation, again, it's www.mightyoaksfoundation.org. And um, I hope so many people can hear your message um, because it's inspirational. And I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so glad Kathy is here. And um, here you are. Isn't it amazing looking back, you know, your dad who was in the military, where you've been through, where you got, and here your sons are. And um, yeah, I look back and, you know, all the things that, all the, all the hardships and struggles in my life, the very things that almost destroyed me from childhood to through adulthood, the very things that almost destroyed me is really the foundation of the the incredible work that I get to be part of and and helping restore people's lives and put their families back together and, and you know really impact their eternities. And so you know, I look back at that, and I'm you know, it, I never knew I'd come to this place, but I could truly say that I'm at a place right now where I actually embrace and I'm grateful for the hardships of of my life. 
so much of what makes us happy is giving back to others. So in closing, you know, what would be a message for you, um, for those of us? uh, And again, and I've touched upon it. We're living through COVID. We're, We're living through isolation. We're living through, I think, a lot of fear and loneliness and angst. Mm-hmm. In, yes, in tough, closing tough, tough, today, what is what's your power message to all of us? Uh, I think if I had one thing to share with anybody at any time, it'd be like um, I think that if you want to be impactful in life in this world, um, and this is for anybody that's listening from five years old to ninety-five years old, I, I think it's just coming into realization that it's not about you. You know, life is not about yourself. And uh, we we tend to all have this kind of perception that the world ro- rotates around us, like. <laughs> and uh, when we can come to the realization that it's not about you, uh, that life isn't about you, it's about serving others, um, regardless of where you're at in life, it's about serving others and those around you. When you can come to that realization, I believe you find uh, joy in your life, um, even though even though you're not being living selfishly anymore. Selfishness is usually the pursuit of jo- individual joy, but it works the opposite when you. When you invest in others, then you find joy, then you find happiness, then you find fulfillment and satisfaction um, because that's how we were wired and created to live. Absolutely. It's so true. And I share that when I did my work in Hinckley, it was out of myself. It was never about me. It was always about them. It is about all of us. And and you said it earlier. um, For me, you know, my film wasn't uh, my favorite film. Something that is my favorite film, you already said it, and that's called pay it forward pay it forward yes that is a good movie yours is great too <laughs> I've always liked it <laughs> well I, I have to tell you it, uh, I would for me personally like to get to know a lot more about your foundation I did share with you before we started talking I am definitely sharing all this information with my son yes. and um, again I'm going to tell everyone please look up www.myoaksfoundation.org and um, the book an unfair advantage. It has been a privilege for me to speak to you. You are delightful. Um, Please send your best to Kathy because here on the other side is family. Boy, that support and her courage and determination and both of you together, what you've been through um, all the way to your family. I wish you the best. Um, I'm going to stay in touch. Yes. Thank you for being you. I'm so glad you're here and for a really very, powerful message that I hope many of us um, can resonate with and not be afraid to talk about some of the issues you touched upon today and how collectively through, as you said, faith and that support, that love, uh, we can help others find their way back to. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, Aaron. Wow. Um, I almost feel like I I could be speechless after listening to that story. Chad, thank you for, for sharing your story and for sharing your struggles and for your service to the country. And thank you for taking the time today to speak out about things that so many of us are so uncomfortable and talking about, and for your help 
that you're giving to others through your organization. So I, I want to share with everyone, if you haven't read it, I hope you do, Chad's book, author of An Unfair Advantage. And, and please, for those suffering or struggling, reach out to www.mightyoaksfoundation.org. They have done such amazing things to, to help us, to help you get through these difficult times. Chad, it was a, a, a privilege for me that to have this conversation with you today. Thank you. Thank you for what you do and thank you for who you are. And thank you, Kathy. Um, what a courageous woman, what a courageous family and what a beautiful message uh, for all of us that it is to pay it forward and life can be hard, but we can make it through. Thank you.